Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. If you are in search of a little escapism, legendary storyteller LeVar Burton is back with all new episodes of LeVar Burton Reads. Each week, LeVar blends immersive soundscapes and his unmatched narration style to fantasy, mystery, and sci-fi stories from famous authors like Octavia Butler, Neil Gaiman, and Ray Bradbury. Your daily life will seem light years away. You can hear new episodes of LeVar Burton Reads every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, Michael Ian Black. And I don't think you can hear what I'm hearing, although you might be able to, but my shitty little rat dog, Jack Jack, is currently having a freak out on the throne, the reading throne behind me. If you recall from last episode, he had undergone a medical procedure and was forced to wear an Elizabethan ruff as a result. Well, the ruff is still about his neck, although Jack, stop it. Put it back on. He just got it off. This is the thing. This is why he's still wearing it a week later because he still he keeps getting it off. And then when he gets it off, he goes at his healing wounds and starts pulling at them and tearing at them and licking at them as anybody would do. If you have an injury, your first thought is to, you know, put pressure on it, uh, lick the blood off, whatever you do. I have always been a blood licker, but Jack does not know that he needs to just leave it alone. And so he has to wear the Elizabethan ruff. And so you can tighten it 
to a certain degree, but then it becomes self-defeating because you end up strangling him to death. And there's no return on investment if he's dead. So he's uncomfortable. I don't blame him. I would be too if I had to wear one of those things. Shakespeare was notoriously uncomfortable. The whole play, Troilus and Cressida, is based on the fact that he had to wear an Elizabethan ruff, and it created so much agita that he had to write a play about Troilus and Cressida. I don't know what Troilus and Cressida is about. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. You know, it's about those um, star-crossed lovers, and he's got he's got nothing but star-crossed lovers in his plays. And certainly Tom Hardy has created a pair of star-crossed lovers himself in Jude and Sue. And when we last left them, it was indeed under the stars. It was the evening. And Sue and Jude had just buried Aunt Drusilla. He had basically said, he had confessed his love for her and said, we would have been married had it not been for Arabella. She neither confirmed nor denied that, but her lack of denial is almost the same as a confirmation. And she's very upset. He's very upset. She's gone to bed in the cottage next door. Jude is equally lonely and disheartened and again questioned his devotional motto that all was for the best. That's where we left it last time, where Jude is now, just now, saying, oh, maybe things aren't for the best. Yeah, we know, dude. He retired to rest early, but his sleep was fitful from the sense that Sue was so near at hand. At some time near two o'clock, when he was beginning to sleep more soundly, he was aroused by a shrill squeak that had been familiar enough to him when he lived regularly at Mary Green. It was the cry of a rabbit caught in a gin. As was the little creature's habit, it did not soon repeat its cry, and probably would not do so more than once or twice, but would remain bearing its torture till the morrow, when the trapper would come and knock it on the head. Taking a little sip of my customary English breakfast tea. And uh, what's that poem? Uh, the little kid's poem. Jumping on the bed. But it ends with somebody getting knocked on the head. That's all I remember about it. He who in his childhood had saved the lives of the earthworms now began to picture the agonies of the rabbit from its lacerated leg. If it were a bad catch by the hind leg, the animal would tug during the ensuing six hours till the iron teeth of the trap had stripped the leg bone of its flesh. When, should a weak-springed instrument enable it to escape, it would die in the fields from the mortification of the limb. If it were a good catch, namely by the foreleg, the bone would be broken and the limb nearly torn in two in attempts at an impossible escape. So this is basically what is going on with my dog, Jack-Jack. We've given him what I think is a good catch uh, in the sense that this is the, the, the surgery was performed on his forelegs and it has created a lot of agony for him. It's not agony. It's just annoying to him. And therefore, and more importantly, annoying to me. 
He has currently found a comfortable position at my side, I think, although he looks unhappy. But yeah, his legs, he's a tiny little dog. His legs aren't much bigger than a rabbit's legs. I mean, if he were to get caught in one of those gins, snap right in two. And, you know, how much effort would I go to save him? It's a good question. It's an interesting philosophical question that I shall not attempt to answer within the scope of this podcast. Almost half an hour passed and the rabbit repeated its cry. Jude could rest no longer till he had put it out of its pain. So dressing himself quickly, he descended and by the light of the moon went across the green in the direction of the sound. He reached the hedge bordering the widow's garden when he stood still. The faint click of the trap as dragged about by the writhing animal guided him now. In reaching the spot, he struck the rabbit on the back of the neck with the side of his palm. And it stretched itself out dead. (laughs) That's not funny, right? (laughs) Smacking a rabbit to death. I mean, why am I laughing? That's horrible. I mean, he was doing, performing a tender mercy for the rabbit. And yet the image of him smacking the thing to death with the palm of his hand (laughs) makes me laugh. It shouldn't. It should not. And I apologize to all of my sensitive readers. That was not very kind of me, but whatever. He was turning away when he saw a woman looking out of the open casement at a window on the ground floor of the adjacent cottage. Jude, said a voice timidly, Sue's voice, it is you, is it not? Yes, dear. I haven't been able to sleep at all. This is Sue speaking. And then I heard the rabbit and couldn't help thinking of what it suffered till I felt I must come down and kill it. But I am so glad you got there first. They ought not to be allowed to set these steel traps, ought they? Well, let's think about this steel trap for a moment that they shouldn't be allowed to set. Who else has been caught in a trap? A steel trap, as it were if not Sue Bridehead and Jude Fawley. And the steel trap is marriage. I mean, that seems to be what they're saying here. Both of them are trapped in this thing. Both of them are in pain. Both of them have uttered their little cries, and both of them are waiting to be smacked about the head. And that's just what this whole book has been about. The failures of our institutions whatever institutions they may be. All of them have failed these people in some capacity, whether it be religion or commerce or simple propriety. Every institution has failed Jude and Sue. But Jude now has the courage to end the suffering of another. So the only conclusion we can draw is that Jude is going to kill Sue. The only conclusion we can draw is that Jude is now going to kill Sue. Jude had reached the window, which was quite a low one, so that she was visible down to her waist. She let go of the casement stay and put her hand upon his, her moonlit face, regarding him wistfully. Did it keep you awake, he said. No, I was awake. How was that? Oh, you know, now I know you with your religious doctrines think that a married woman in trouble of a kind like mine commits a mortal sin in making a man the confidant 
of it as I did you. I wish I hadn't now. Don't wish it, dear, he said. That may have been my view, but my doctrines and I begin to part company. Interesting. Judah's saying, as he did, as we just in the, in, at the end of the last episode, and as I repeated at the beginning of this, he again questioned his devotional motto that all was for the best. So that devotional motto, if we take it, if we look a little, we drill down into it a little bit, as they say on the news shows, is that there is in all seeing, all knowing, all loving God. And whatever happens, happens for the best because that God has willed it to be so. And Jude is now saying that his faith in that idea, in that devotional motto, it is lessening for him and for good reason, because everything has been terrible for him up to this point. And now granted, he's still a young man. Things may turn around. But, you know, what's a young man really in Jude's time? He'll be dead before he's 28. I knew it, uh, says Sue. I knew it. And that's why I vowed I wouldn't disturb your beliefs, but I am so glad to see you. And oh, I didn't mean to see you again. Now the last tie between us, Aunt Drusilla, is dead. And Jack is driving me crazy. Chill out. All is for the best, Jack Jack. All is for the best. Come here. Come here. I'm petting him. I'm trying to give him some comfort, but his... He's clearly uncomfortable. Let me see what I can do. And we will get back to reading in a minute on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Guys are terrible at taking care of their health, whether it's a knee injury, a bad back, or something worse. Guys are usually more comfortable rubbing some dirt on it than seeing a doctor. I had to practically be dragged to the doctor when I was experiencing my own medical discomfiture, a hernia. And then I went to the doctor, 
And she said, you have a hernia, you need to schedule some surgery. So I called the surgeon. And in between the time that I called the surgeon and was going to go into the surgeon for my consultation, my hernia disappeared. And I didn't question it. So is that a miracle? You tell me. But guys, we don't talk about our problems. That's kind of the issue. And the same is true for erectile dysfunction. Studies show 70% of guys who experience ED don't get treated for it. Thankfully, Roman created an easy way to get checked out by a doctor and get treated for ED online. Roman is a one-stop shop where licensed U.S. physicians can diagnose ED and ship medication right to your door. No more waiting rooms, awkward face-to-face conversations, or uncomfortable trips to the pharmacy. You can handle everything online. All you have to do is visit GetRoman.com slash obscure, complete a dynamic online visit, chat with a doctor, and get medication delivered to your door in discreet, unmarked packaging. Erectile dysfunction is a problem that guys don't tackle, but with Roman, it is really simple. So take care of it. For a free online visit, go to GetRoman.com slash obscure. That is GetRoman.com slash obscure. For a free online visit, GetRoman.com slash obscure. We're back on Obscure. Jack has settled down here a bit for the moment. And Jude is doing his own comforting here. He's he's comforting Sue, I think, and I'll go on. Jude seized her hand and kissed it. There is a stronger one left, he said, meaning a tie between them. I'll never care about my doctrines or my religion anymore. Let them go. Let me help you, even if I do love you. And even if you don't say it, she says, I know what you mean, but I can't admit so much as that. There, guess what you like, but don't press me to answer questions. I wish you were happy, whatever I may be. I can't be. So few could enter into my feeling. They would say twas my fanciful, fanciful fastidiousness or something of that sort and condemn me. It is none of the natural tragedies of love. That's love's usual tragedy in civilized life. But a tragedy artificially manufactured for people who live in a natural state would find relief in parting. It would have been wrong, perhaps, for me to tell my distress to you if I had been able to tell it to anybody else, but I have nobody, and I must tell somebody. Jude, before I married him, I had never thought out fully what marriage meant, even though I knew. It was idiotic of me. There is no excuse. I was old enough, and I thought I was very experienced. So I rushed on when I had got into that training school scrape with all the cocksuredness of the fool that I was. I am certain one ought to be allowed to undo what one has done so ignorantly. I dare say it happens to lots of women. Only they submit, and I kick. When people of a later age look back upon the barbarous customs and superstitions of the times that we have the unhappiness to live in, what will they say? 
You are very bitter, darling, Sue. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. No shit. That's what she's been saying to him since they met. Yeah, she's very bitter. Because she can't find her place in the world. And now she has to sleep with some dude that she's not attracted to. And she thought she could. She thought she could do it. She thought she could just kind of, uh, I mean, more than endure it, she thought she would be fine with it. But but no, she's not. She is not fine to give her body to somebody with whom she is not entranced. And she is beating herself up mercilessly about it. Now, you and I, in our, our modern age, looking back upon the barbarous customs and superstitions of those times... We understand the unhappiness that she lives in. And when she asks, what will they say? Well, guess what? I'm saying it. It sucked. Again, I mean, I said it last time. It's probably not that uncommon even today. In fact, it may be more common than uncommon that people, men and women, are, well, let's just start with hooking up for the wrong reasons. Now, look, no prude eye. I have no problem with hookup culture. If you want to sleep around, sleep around, but know why you're doing it and be okay with it. But if you're doing it for reasons that are meant to assuage something in yourself that cannot be assuaged, as Sue did when she married Phillotson, well, then you're going to be unhappy. And then you get to marriage. And people are still, of course, marrying for the wrong reasons and sometimes not getting married for the wrong reasons. We're people. All we do is make mistakes. But it is possible now for all of us to look back on Victorian England and say, what the fuck? What were they doing? Because Sue is somebody who I think Tinder would have been very good for. I think Sue is somebody for whom swiping left or right or whatever you do on Tinder would have empowered her and made her feel like she was in control of her own destiny. And she did not have to be bound to the strictures of the times. And, and those, those strictures have loosened considerably for all of us, for good or for ill. You know, for some people, they need that. You know, they need those rules and those models to squeeze themselves into so that they know how to pursue their life. I don't even, I'm not even saying that disparagingly. I think that can be very good for people. But not for Sue. For Jude, yes. Jude needs it. Questioning it is what makes Jude unhappy. Because I don't know that he'll ever be capable of freeing himself from it. But I guess we're going to find out. Because that's exactly what he's trying to do right now. What will they say? You are very bitter, darling Sue. How I wish. I wish. You must go in now. In a moment of impulse, she bent over the sill and laid her face upon his hair, weeping, and then imprinting a scarcely perceptible little kiss upon the top of his head, withdrawing quickly, so that he could not put his arms round her, as otherwise he unquestionably would have done. She shut the casement, and he returned to his cottage. Well... That's the end of the chapter there. And they are two miserable little people. Just miserable. Because they cannot be together. Because they have both so utterly screwed up their lives. Chapter 3. 
Sue's distressful confession recurred to Jude's mind all the night as being a sorrow indeed. The morning after, when it was time for her to go, the neighbors saw her companion and herself disappearing on foot down the hill path which led into the lonely road to Alfredston. And it was a lonely road because that's where he and uh, Arabella lived. An hour passed before he returned along the same route, and in his face there was a look of exaltation, not unmixed with recklessness. An incident had occurred. So, I guess all the neighbors' tongues are going to be wagging. Well, Jude and his companion went, did you see Jude and his companion went off there and he, they were sorrowful and sad, you know, because of the aunt. And then they came back and suddenly Jude, don't you know, was happy as a clam. That's what they'll be saying, you know, because as you know, I've been binging Fargo and all the neighbors in Mary Green now talk like the people in Fargo. Well, what do you think happened then? Oh, I don't know. You know, maybe you should ask the boy. Oh, no, it's none of my business. So now we'll find out what the incident was. They had stood parting in the silent highway and their tense and passionate moods had led to bewildered inquiries of each other on how far their intimacy ought to go till they had almost quarreled, and she had said tearfully that it was hardly proper of him as a parson in embryo to think of such a thing as kissing her even in farewell, as he now wished to do. Then she conceded that the fact of the kiss would be nothing. All would depend on the spirit of it. If given in the spirit of a cousin and a friend, she saw no objection. If in the spirit of a lover, she could not permit it. Will you swear that it will not be in that spirit? She had said, no, he would not. And then they turned from each other in estrangement and gone their several ways till at a distance of 20 or 30 yards, both had looked round simultaneously. That look behind was fatal to the reserve hitherto more or less maintained. They had quickly run back and met, embracing most unpremeditatively, kissed close and long. When they parted for good, it was with flushed cheeks on her side and a beating heart on his. Well, they finally did it, didn't they? They finally had that big Hollywood movie kiss. I mean, you hear the sigh coming from me. I needed that more than I care to admit. I needed them to be together in that moment. I needed them to kiss, not as cousin or friend, but as lovers. Now I want to point out something. You know, this is my wife's copy of Jude the Obscure, as I have mentioned repeatedly. And as I have mentioned, she, throughout the book, uh, has underlined passages and made tiny little notes. Well, on this page, there's a little line uh, going down the page. Uh, about the spirit of the kiss that, that I have just read. And then in her handwriting, it says, this is Martha now speaking, it says, she's fucked. 
I don't know what she means. Um, because, she, you know, Sue had had been, uh, well, uh, fucked to begin with. And in she is trying to unfuck her situation, even if it's only emotionally, by being with Jude in this capacity. But apparently Martha thinks, oh, no, this is this is going to be bad. Well, we'll see. I mean, I believe her. The kiss was a turning point in Jude's career. Back again in the cottage and left to reflection, he saw one thing. That though his kiss of that aerial being had seemed the purest moment of his faultful life, as long as he nourished his unlicensed tenderness, it was glaringly inconsistent for him to pursue the idea of becoming the soldier and servant of a religion in which sexual love was regarded as at its best a frailty and at its worst damnation. What Sue had said in warmth, really was the cold truth. He was condemned ipso facto as a professor of the accepted school of morals. He was as unfit, obviously, by nature as he had been by social position to fill the part of a propounder of accredited dogma. Strange that his aspiration towards academical proficiency had been checked by a woman, and that his second aspiration towards apostleship had also been checked by a woman. Is it, he said, that the women are to blame, or is it the artificial system of things under which the normal sex impulses are turned into devilish domestic gins and springs to noose and hold back those who want to progress? This is incredibly forward-thinking of my friend Tom Hardy to entertain these notions in the late 19th century. And I'm going to applaud him because he would fit right in in contemporary, well, let's say feminist thought, that it is... And when I say feminist here, I'm including both sexes, but what I... in, in in terms of the school of thought. But it has affected women probably more profoundly than it has affected men. Men generally have not been held back by their sexual impulses. It is women who have been the prisoners of those impulses from time immemorial as Sue has been belaboring this entire time. Hold on, I have to have some tea. Oh, that's good tea. Getting a little cold now and Jack is also being very fitful. But Sue has been saying this whole time, I don't belong here because I have these inclinations. I'm boy crazy. I have uh, a yearning in me. And it's not exactly sexual in nature, but it has the sexual yearning is a symptom of it. It is a yearning for fulfillment. And I cannot find fulfillment in this place and in this time. And Jude is just now seeing what she meant because he too cannot find fulfillment in his own time and place. And he is saying that there is an artificial system of things under which the normal sex impulses, and he is using the word normal probably for the first time. In, in other words, no, he hasn't thought of these impulses as a normal thing. He's thought of them as a torment 
right? Like the rabbit trap, the gins and springs to noose and hold back those who want to progress. He wants to progress. And he thought all along the way to progress is through the academical or through the apostleship. He thought that that was the way for him to progress. But now he's seeing that all of it is impossible because it's all encased in this artificial system of things that he can't get out of. And Sue has been trying this whole time to tell him it. And he hasn't been able to listen. He hasn't heard it because he's been like that fish swimming in water going, what's water? He couldn't see it. He's starting to see it now. And it's all thanks to her. Now, I have been very hard on Sue throughout this podcast, and I have questioned her judgment. I have questioned pretty much everything about her. I've been hard on Jude too, but I've been harder on Sue. And now I'm feeling bad because Sue has been right the whole time, but has just made a lot of poor decisions as a result of her seeing things the way they are. She saw the artificial system of things from the very beginning and has been trying to find a way out, but has made a lot of poor decisions in trying to, to get out. But of course, who wouldn't? If you're inside of a, of a maze, you're going to go down a lot of dead ends before you get to the escape. All right, that was a lot to take in. I'll be back in a moment on Obscure. Welcome back to Obscure. Jude has just had a real religious epiphany. If you are following along with your own copy of Obscure, and I prefer to think that you are, we are in Chapter 4 at Shaston. It had been his standing desire to become a prophet, however humble, to his struggling fellow creatures, without any thought of personal gain. Yet, with a wife living away from him with another husband, and himself in love erratically, the loved ones revolt against her state being possibly on his account. He had sunk to be barely respectable according to regulation views. It was not for him to consider further. He had only to confront the obvious, which was that he had made himself quite an impostor as a law-abiding religious teacher. At dusk that evening, he went into the garden and dug a shallow hole, to which he brought out all the theological and ethical works that he possessed and had stored here. He knew that in this country of true believers, most of them were not saleable at a much higher price than waste paper value. <laughs> so Tom Hardy now getting his own little uh, dig into his countrymen, even if he should sacrifice a little money to the sentiment of thus destroying them. Lighting some loose pamphlets to begin with, he cut the volumes into pieces as well as he could, and with a three-pronged fork shook them over the flames. They kindled and lighted up the back of the house, the pigsty, and his own face till they were more or less consumed. Well, shit. Jude has... I mean, he's just gone full Monty. 
He's just ripped off his clothes and said, here I am naked and afraid and I'm burning everything. I'm burning every scrap of protection that I have. And the protection that he had is this dogma, this religion, this old timey religion that had kept him clothed and warm for lo these many years. But now he finds that they protect him no longer. In fact, he has felt suffocated by them. These doctrines, these dogmas, the epistles, all of it. It has been like the noose that he described, strangulating him half to death. And so he's getting rid of all of it. He's dug a hole and burned it till its light shone on everything, the house, the pigsty, and his own face. And who knows what is going to happen now? Everything that he thought he knew has been a lie. Every sense of himself has been shredded and consumed in that fire. Nothing is for the best. And it never was, except for Sue Bridehead. What is that quote from the beginning of this part the fourth? Let me go back to it at Chaston. Here it is from J. Milton. Whoso prefers either matrimony or other ordinance before the good of man and the plain exigence of charity... Let him profess Papist or Protestant or what he will. He is no better than a Pharisee. Hardy is speaking to a higher truth now. A truth that supersedes that old-timey religion. It is the truth of that deeper matrimony that we talked about in the last episode. A matrimony based on something more than this compact, this legal and doctrinal compact between two folks. It's something holier than that. And that's what Jude has been seeking this entire time. A kind of divinity, a holiness. And I mean holiness now in terms of the religious aspect of it and the holistic aspect of it, a wholeness. And he's been unable to find it. And the deeper he plunged into the traditional avenue, the traditions of his time, the more dead ends he found. So here we are, a fire burning, lighting up the pigsty, Jude naked and afraid. Jack Jack has finally settled down. My tea has grown cold. And yet I have never been hotter, hotter for Jude Hotter for Sue, I myself feel warmed by this fire. Now, look, I come at it as an atheist, but I don't mean to be. I'm not I'm not coming down on religion here. I'm just saying I like that Jude has shed his protection. I like that he is being fully vulnerable in this moment. It turns me on in a literary sense and in a sexual sense. All right. I'm going to end this episode. I'm going to remove Jack-Jack from the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. I'm going to finish my tea. And I'm going to revel in this moment. 
But we all know that traditions are very hard things to overcome. And tradition may have its way with them. We'll find out next time on another heart palpitating episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. I was going to say a thrilling episode, but I'm, I'm humble. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like what you've heard, Take it up with Thomas Hardy, not with me. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, and you would. Email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. Dolly, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher. Apple Podcasts. Or wherever you listen. Hola, Nezea. Spanish Aki Presents.